Good morning. The scripture this morning is from 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we were uh, staring, my wife and I, at three identical blank gray doors. No windows, no idea what was on the uh, other side of each of them. And I turned to her and I was like, let's, you know what, let's just forget it. Let's forget about it. Let's go home. And Jenna says, no, 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 I've been looking forward to this all week. We got to just try one. See, it was a couple weeks after Valentine's Day, and I had done what every uh, cheap husband in need of inspiration does as Valentine's Day is coming. I went to Groupon. And I started Googling, you know, couples, dates, and things like that, and I found for a steal five, for the price of one, ballroom dancing lessons. <laughs> I know, that's what I thought. She's going to love this. One of us is going to step on the other's toes. We're going to embarrass ourselves in front of strangers. We'll end up with leg cramps, go home crying, and only have to do it once. It'll be perfect. So I bought the group on. Jenna was thrilled. I've always wanted to learn how to do that. I said, all right, let's do it. We got a babysitter. We set our first uh, first lesson appointment, and we got in the car and we started driving to where the address on the Groupon told us to go. Uh, that was when it started getting difficult. Uh, we ended up in this weird, like, office complex, you know, six identical gray buildings with all of these rows of doors with just numbers on them. And it took us three laps around to finally find the door that had the number on it that matched the address on our Groupon. And it is a solid steel door. You can't see any. I have no idea what's on the other side. So we opened it. And there's this hallway, no signs, no nothing, just a long hallway and a set of stairs. Like, well, I guess we go up the stairs. So we go up the stairs. That's where we find ourselves in front of these three doors, none of which are labeled. The sign was behind us, and I'd missed it on the way up. So I'm looking at these three doors and thinking, you know what? I already feel like an idiot because I'm half an hour late. Now I'm going to have to open a random door and be like, is this where people dance? And, and look like an idiot. They can keep my money. I'm, I'm going home. And Jenna says, no, no, no. And, and before I can make my retreat, she figures out which door it is, pulls it open, and I walked into a dance studio for the first time in my life. 20 foot by 30 foot dance floor receptionist desk over here, old furniture, kind of flanking a manager's office, the mess of which was spilling out onto the floor. The receptionist looks at us and says in a tone of voice that made it clear she did not think we were ballroom material, can I help you? And I, you know, manned up in this moment. I'm like, yeah, we have a Groupon? She says, hold on a second, and walks away, and we're just standing there. I don't know what's next. I don't know what's going to, do we just go start dancing? What shoes do I wear on this floor? I have no idea. She comes back after what felt like an eternity with our instructor, and he gets us out on the floor, and he's praising our, our rhythm and our poise and promises he's going to be there next week for our next lesson. And as we're walking out, I, I asked Jenna, do you think all of, all of that, like 
the ambiguity, the lack of clues about where to go next, the difficulty of finding the place, the uncomfortableness of embarrassing yourselves in front of strangers, the not really knowing what goes on inside of one of these things, the vague sense that they're going to try to get more money out of you at some point in the future. You think that's what the average unchurched person feels like the first time they go to church? See, we are almost done with our building remodel, a big goal of which was to try to think of our building in terms of somebody who's seeing it for the first or second time and remove some of those barriers, remove some of those boundaries that keep people from feeling comfortable in what's going on in our space. So we've done things, you know, like put windows in walls so you can tell what's happening on the other side of doors instead of just opening it and hoping, you know, hoping that you ever worry you're going to open a door and someone's teaching right there and then everyone looks at you like, we don't want that to happen. So we've done stuff like that. We've remodeled the kids' space to try to spark the imagination of our children, give them a place that they love going, a, a connection space where parents can connect with one another. And as we're coming to the end of this, we thought, you know, it's a good idea to stop for a little bit and to think, okay, building the building isn't the end goal. Rebuilding the facility isn't the end goal. That's, it's just a tool to allow us to do a different kind of ministry better. So let's stop for a couple of weeks which we've been doing, and, and just saying, okay, we've got this building. What do we want to do with it? Why do we have it? Two weeks ago, Pastor Jeff kicked us off. He talked about how the, the church building is like a home for a family. When you come into this building, you know, when you're here, your family, when you come into this building, you shouldn't feel like a stranger entering through the basement in someone's house you've never been in. You should feel like you were invited over, like there's a place for you to sit and talk, have a cup of coffee or a meal to connect, to feel at, at home, because the church is not a collection or a gathering together of random people who never interact with one another. It's a congregation. It's a grouping that draws life from one another. And when someone comes in, we want them to feel that, not feel like they have to know some sort of secret knowledge in order to know which door to go in. Last week... Jeff then led us to think about, well, okay, the church is a home for the family, for disciples who are a people, a people who do life with God. So how does the church building sort of encourage that life with God? And he used the metaphor of a greenhouse. You know, greenhouse is a structure that kind of focuses the light and the heat that's necessary for the plants inside to grow. And what we want to be able to do in this facility is focus the light and the heat, the glory of the gospel of God's goodness to us in Christ, into our lives so we can grow spiritually, maybe even kickstart that spiritual growth so that we grow at a pace, uh, at a more rapid pace than we would if uh, we were just out there on our own getting all of our discipleship through YouTube. We do this together in a greenhouse. This week, I want us to think about the church as a spiritual fitness center. A spiritual fitness center, because as we have talked about what it means to be disciples, we've said disciples are a people who do life with God for the world. In other words, we don't grow just for the sake of growing. We grow because there's something we need to grow to be able to do. And a fitness center doesn't exist just for the sake of making you fit. It exists to make you fit for a purpose. 
So you heard read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. We're going to these verses because it's in these verses that Paul very clearly lays out what is it we are being fit to do, to accomplish. He calls it the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation, if you're not there yet, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. By the way, it's on page 1148 if it's faster for you to just grab the Bible under the seat in front of you and turn there. But in verses 18, 19, 20 through 21, as we go through these, as we see this ministry of reconciliation, one kind of main idea is going to keep coming up over and over and over again. It's a very simple one. It's not original with me, but it's good enough that I'm going to steal it and not tell you who I stole it from. Over and over, we're going to see whatever God has done to us, he also wants to do through us. Whatever God has done to us, he also wants to do through us. That is life with God for the world, the essence of what it means to be a disciple. Whatever God has done to us, he also wants to do through us. So if we want to know what he wants us to do and what he wants to do through us, we've got to figure out what he's already done to us. So let's consider that question first. What has God done to us? And I want to start by looking at verse 18. What has God done to us? Well, Paul writes, all this is from God. All this referring to the stuff that came before, like verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the objective reality of who we are. But there's also our sort of personal um, grasping of that that comes through in verses like uh, 14, for the love of Christ controls us or compels us. All of that is from God, the God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. All of that, all of this comes from God, this God who, through Christ, has reconciled us to himself. And reconciled or reconciliation is just, it's a great word. Uh, when it's used in this kind of theological context between us and God is what I mean by th- theological, uh, it's only actually used by St. Paul in the New Testament. He's the only one who talks about reconciliation as foundational to our understanding of what it means to be in a relationship with God. And it's foundational to his understanding of the gospel. Now, I know reconciliation is one of those big churchy words, so rather than just assume that we all know what I'm talking about, let me define it. Reconciliation is the act of taking a, an estranged relationship and making it or restoring it to its previously friendly state. Trading an, ex, an estranged or hostile relationship for a close or friendly relationship. Sometimes it's creating that friendly relationship, but most of the time it's restoring a friendly relationship that was there until some harm or offense or estrangement or hostility came in, and then the relationship became separated, difficult, estranged. Reconciliation is the process of taking that relationship and moving it back towards a friendly relationship. Of course, to do that, the offenses on both sides of the relationship have to be resolved. They have to be done away with. They have to be somehow taken away or paid for it, it'd be nice to just say, well, you know, I forgive you, it's easy, I don't really have to think about it, but any, diff- any really difficult thing costs a lot if you're going to be reconciled. You have to give up something 
whether it's your rights or your pride or a sense of being correct or wanting the other person to grovel or whatever it is, you have to give up something. I've uh, been in ministry long enough that I have managed in large ways and small ways to uh, hurt pretty much everyone I've worked with. Some of you laugh because you're like, really? And others just are silent because, yeah, you've been on the other end of it. I don't do it on purpose. Um, I'm just a sinful human being who tends to think that his feelings are the only ones that matter. And uh, so sometimes the way I interact with people doesn't, it's, it's not the best. Uh, if I haven't, by the way, hurt you yet, um, come volunteer with me on this new project I'm doing and uh, give it some time. I'll figure out a way to do it. Now, I was thinking back to a particular time uh, in which I had th three volunteers who were great volunteers, but I was burnt out and frustrated, and my sort of hired holy man veneer had been scraped off, and all that was coming through was like my real stuff. And I was trying to lead this change, and it wasn't working, and it wasn't going the way I wanted to, so I sent these three volunteers an email. I just said, hey, you guys are conspiring against me on this decision, and it needs to stop. Yeah, not the holiest thing to do. They each contacted me then and said, can we, can we sit down and talk face to face? Which is a more mature way of handling the situation than I had. So I set up these appointments and two of these volunteers, uh, without consulting the other, two of these volunteers came in and both said the exact same thing. They came into my office, having just gotten this email in which I questioned their character, I questioned their loyalty, I questioned their commitment to what we were doing, uh, and told them they needed to basically just, you know, take it, I'm the leader, follow. They came in, and, they, and one at a time, they both said, are you okay? This doesn't seem like you. See, both of them had decided ahead of time that what I had done to harm the relationship, to estrange the relationship, the selfishness and the self-centeredness that I had just sort of spewed through the keyboard on them, all of that personal need to be recognized as a guy who knows what he's talking about, all of that that I had sent their way, they said, you know, none of that matters compared to reconciling this relationship. Both of them decided ahead of time. That offense uh, isn't worth destroying the relationship. And they had both already chosen to be reconciled to me, and then it was up to me to decide how I was going to respond. That's the exact same way it works in Scripture when Paul talks about God's reconciling himself to us. God is always the subject. He's always the one doing the action. He's always the one initiating reconciliation. That's a huge deal. Because that means everything that we have done to estrange ourselves from God, to separate ourselves from Him, every offense against His holiness, every time we've broken His heart by choosing other gods, other things over Him to give us our safety and our security and our sense of well-being and worth, every time that we have turned our back on His blessing, all of that He's dealt with. He is reconciled to us, Paul says, and is inviting us to respond and be reconciled to him. So when those two volunteers walked into my office and each one said, are you okay? I responded the same way to both. I just started crying and asked for forgiveness. 
because they had come to me already deciding that love was more important than what I had done to them. Neither of them showed up and said, ask for forgiveness and then we'll see what I do. Neither of them showed up and said, I'm going to need you to grovel for a little while. Then we can be reconciled. They both walked into my office and said, are you okay? This isn't the relationship I want to have. It was an incredibly profound moment for me both times because I realized how far reconciliation can go to restore a broken relationship and how little I can do when I'm the one who broke it in the first place. It's all dependent on the other person. And so when Paul tells us, verse 18, all this is from God, the God who through Christ reconciled us to himself through Jesus' death and resurrection, his life, his sacrificial death in our place and his resurrection to bring us into new life, all of this, in all of that, through Christ, he's reconciled us to himself. He has done it. It's done. And in verse 19, he goes on, he says, let, let me explain, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. The action of Christ in living, dying, and rising again was God reconciling, putting aside, putting away all the estrangement on his side of the relationship equation for us, and he tells us how in verse 19, by not counting our trespasses against us, not counting their trespasses against them. All that sinfulness, all that selfishness, all that rebellion, all of that running away. He said, I'm not going to count it against you because fixing this relationship is more important than all the things that you've done wrong. And he shows up and says, so, how are you doing? And all we can do is respond. This is what God has done to us. And Paul sort of explains the, the theological nuanced detail of it in verse 21. This one verse that is a great summary of the gospel itself, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, or I should say what God has done for us through Jesus. Verse 21, for our sake, that's, that's you and me, his readers, himself, for our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. It's this, this great exchange, this great transfer of sinfulness and righteousness. Everything that Jesus is in his relationship with God is traded for everything that we are in our relationship with God, which is to say all the, all the fallenness, all the selfishness, all of the self-destruction, just, uh, are just our human propensity to see something shiny and want to scratch it. Like all of that is traded to Christ so that Christ's righteousness is given to us. And God seeing us through Christ then says, look, from my side of the relationship, everything's fine. It's been taken care of. Do you want to be reconciled to me? God says. See, this is what God has done to us or for us. He has offered to us free forgiveness, free reconciliation, the restoration of the relationship with him that we lost in the fall, the, the honor of being adopted back into his family as, as a firstborn and then 
the struggle, but the, the glorious struggle of learning what it means to live as a child in God's house. He offers all of that to us for free. This is what God has done to you, for you. Whether you feel like it or not, God has done this for you. And if he's done anything to us, anything for us, I can guarantee he wants to do that through us. I've spent maybe more time than I needed to explaining exactly what reconciliation is because we have to be crystal clear on what God has done to us if we're going to have any idea of then what he wants to do through us. Because Paul draws a direct line between what God has done and then what we are called to do. Look back at the text. Verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He reconciled us and then gave us a ministry, a vocation, a calling, a position in his house. We are ministers of reconciliation. He gave us a job. More than that, verse 19, that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself and entrusting to us the ministry or the message of reconciliation. He's given us a calling, a job, a vocation, a position, and he's given us a message, a confession, a story. He's given us something now to go tell people. Verse 20, he really brings it out. He says, therefore, in light of this, in light of the fact that God has reconciled us and now given us a ministry of reconciliation, in light of the fact that in Christ." He has reconciled us to himself and has now given us a message of reconciliation. Therefore, because of those two things and how connected they are, therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ. Therefore, we have a position, a vocation that encompasses both our calling and our confession, what we do and what we say, and it comes under this one title of ambassador. Now, let's put this in a hypothetical. How good is an ambassador who never leaves the country of his birth to travel to the country to which he's supposed to represent the country of his birth? Did that make sense? I don't think I said that well. How good is an ambassador who never leaves home? You're like, Sunday school answer, not very good. Yes, if that ambassador just sits at home and reads books about the United States so he knows the U.S. so well, but never leaves, never goes and represents us to uh, the leader of the country he's assigned to, never goes and mingles with the citizens of that particular country, never invites those citizens or those leaders into the United States in order to experience what life here is like. How good of an ambassador is that guy? What happens to him? He gets fired. But if he doesn't get fired, for some reason is allowed to stay on, what happens to that country he's supposed to represent us to? Boy, it makes it really easy for them to believe all sorts of wrong things about the U.S., right? All sorts of stereotypes, all sorts of false ideas. They have no idea about the nuance. You know, everybody thinks Americans are the same, but if you've ever met a New Yorker, a Texan, and a Californian at the same time, we are, and a Midwesterner for that matter, we are not at all alike. But you don't know that if you've never met one, if you've never gone, if the ambassador never goes. How likely are they to believe wrong things about us, to not understand, uh, or to not know where to find out more about us, to not ever have a, you know, a one-on-one interaction with us? 
And maybe, maybe I'm beating an obviously dead horse here, but I think you see the parallel, right, to the church. If we are God's ambassadors, if we are ambassadors for Christ and we never go ambass, <laughs> what's the point? How likely are people who don't know us, who don't know who Jesus is, how, are, how likely are they to believe wrong things about Christians and about Jesus? How likely are they to assume that all Christians are alike, they're all the stereotype of whatever they see, wherever they see it, how likely are they to believe that's what all Christians are like if they've never met one that doesn't fulfill that stereotype? How likely are they to have a nuanced understanding of what we mean when we talk about the concepts that are profoundly foundational to our faith, like grace, forgiveness, justification, reconciliation, all the other Asians. If we don't go out as ambassadors, how likely is it that the world around us is going to have an understanding of who we are, who Jesus is, and be introduced to him through us? Yeah, survey says not likely. But what, is, what does Paul do here in verse 20? Look, he, he immediately, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. We are ambassadors. We are representatives of God now. We're representatives of Jesus. Even to the extent that it's as if God is making his appeal to you to be reconciled, he's making that appeal through us. Now, does he stop there and just state the fact? This is what we are. See you next week. He goes on. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Hey, we've got this mission, we've got this calling, we've got this message, we've got this confession, and so we implore you, be reconciled to God. This is the heart of the gospel. Be reconciled to God. God has already done everything necessary uh, to overcome the estrangement from his side of the relationship. Our responsibility is simply to respond and be reconciled, to accept the fact that he has already made everything right, and through faith, accept that and be at peace. Paul says, hey, we're ambassadors now. God's making his appeal, so we're going to make an appeal. Be reconciled. Whatever God has done to us, right, he also wants to do through us. So if God has reconciled us to himself and now gives us this mandate, this ministry to bring others into that reconciliation, what are we supposed to do? He's reconciled us to himself Now we go and invite others to be reconciled to him. He has saved us. We go and invite others to find salvation in him. Those two things are inextricably linked. Paul puts them three times, one verse at a time. uh, God reconciled us, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He reconciled us, gave us the message of reconciliation. We're We're ambassadors for Jesus. We make the appeal, be reconciled. Whatever God's done to you, he also wants to do through you. So how are we doing? 
you know, we've been talking for a couple of years now about this strategic process that we've been in. We brought in consultants, we did all these focus groups, we did the assessment, we did all these different things. And the main reason we keep bringing it up is so that you know that there's some overarching plan and that we're not just doing things willy-nilly. Uh, but I, I was thinking back to one of the particular sessions that we had, 40 of us in a room, trying to really nail down what is God calling us, this church right here, to do. And we knew that the, the universal church, the church in all times and all places, has always been called to declare the gospel declared the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. To declare the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ across the globe. That is the church universal's call. But what about us right here for the next five years, 10 years? What are we supposed to do? And we, we debated that around and eventually we landed on this, uh, what felt like a, a God-given phrase. He's called us to uh, equip followers of Christ to reflect him to the world very specifically to reflect him as informed and winsome ambassadors in a secular context we find ourselves in. And we landed on this, uh, this verb, uh, equipping. We're an equipping church, which is a good thing. It gets me fired up. It gets me excited. I like to be able to use large words without defining them. I want to take, you know, people who have learned a lot and, and like pour in just a little bit more. It, it makes me feel good to be that much higher. Um, that was not in my notes. But it may be time for a corrective. We may have gone so far down the equipping side, the life with God side. We may need to correct back towards the life with God for the world side. We love life with God. We love worship services, classes that teach us more about God. We love uh, the spiritual disciplines, learning prayer, learning how to draw close to God. We love the, the training and the equipping, the opportunities to serve, the opportunities to learn more about what it means to serve the world around us, uh, to go on a mission trip. We love sending missionaries around the world. We love giving money to support their missions. We, we love the idea that people we've sent out from here are talking to non-believers and telling them about Jesus. We just maybe don't want them here. Have you noticed that? We love when non-Christians are here, if they're our children, and they're down in the kids' ministry. We have a hard time with a new Christian or a non-Christian walking into this church and saying, how do I grow? In that big group, we were all talking together, and one person said, I lead people to Jesus all the time, but I usually tell them to go to a different church. You kind of have to have been a believer for 15 years or so to understand what's going on at faith. You think we could get that number down a little bit? More than once over the last couple of years, I've sat across the table from someone who's told me something like, hey, you know, this building campaign you guys are doing, I think it's great you're talking about reaching the lost, but remember, we're not a winning church. We're an equipping church. I love the idea that you're thinking about the chairs that are empty and who's going to fill them, but, but don't lose sight of the fact that at core, what we're really good at is equipping people, not leading people to Jesus. And I don't think I ever said it out loud, but I was always thinking, and if I equip you to lead them to Jesus, where do you want to invite them to church? Here? 
somewhere else. What God has done to us, the treasure that we carry around in jars of clay, he says in chapter 4, this light of the knowledge of the glory of God's goodness to us in Jesus that we carry with us, what God has done to us, we also need to allow him to do through us, not just individually, but as a church. It's very easy to be an equipping church, and it's very easy to be a winning church. It is almost impossible to do both, but that's the call of every church. You know, I, I wanted us to think of the, the church and the church building as sort of a, a spiritual fitness center, not because we're going to uh, start installing like those um, bikes that you can pedal to power up your prayers or something like that, um, like they have at the airport. It, we're not doing cardio or the Catholic calisthenics I grew up learning with all the sit-stand kneel. Um, that's not what we mean. What we mean is the church should be a place where you're put through your paces in order to be formed, to be fit for the mission that God has for us. What's the mission he has for us? Well, I have a pretty good feeling that what he wants us to do is probably something he's already done to us. He's reconciled us to himself and now wants to do that through us, bring other people into that reconciled relationship with him. Are we okay being a spiritual fitness center that's not all that interested in signing up new members? Are we okay being a spiritual fitness center that doesn't have a couch to 5K program? Are we okay being a spiritual fitness center that's primarily oriented around taking healthy people and making them that much healthier? Or do we want to be the spiritual fitness center that takes people who have never walked a mile in their lives and shows them how they can grow? Very first time I walked into a fitness center was in Dallas, Texas. Uh, seminary tuition also paid for a membership at the Baylor Tom Landry Center. And uh, all I, the only effect the fitness center ever had on me was remembering its name. But the very first time I walked in, it was obvious I did not belong. Um, people, you know, guys are walking in their swanky suits and all that, and, and, and it, you know, Jen and I went together, and she went that way, and I went this way, which meant I was on my own. I had to figure this thing out by myself, which I hate doing because I don't want to look dumb. But I go in and, uh, you know, walking past all this equipment I don't know how to use, and, and my favorite part of the gym was when you first walked in, there was a lounge. There were a bunch of couches and a TV with the news on and free orange juice. And the very first time I went, I saw that and I thought, I know what that's for. And I looked that way and there was an unmarked hallway. And then it turned. I had no idea what was on the other side of that corner. So I didn't go. I sat in the couches and I watched the news and drank orange juice and, and read a book. It's the best workout I've ever had. Because that facility said, hey, we're here to help healthy people get a little bit healthier. Everyone who walked in had more muscles. I mean, they, just their muscles weighed more than me. I mean, uh, they, they were all impressive looking, and they had the tans and all this. And, and I was like, I could, is there a gym for pasty white people? Because that's the one I want to go to, where I look normal, not atrophied, right? <laughs> and the church should be like that, too. You know, if... This church is full of spiritual fitness coaches, people who are qualified, who said, I've been there. I've been the spiritually fat kid who, who never got off the couch, but look at me now. Like, I can help you on that journey. But if we're not bringing any of those people in, if we're not encouraging them to be here, if they, if they don't even 
see anyone like them here, then we're not going to be able to do it. I want to go to the church where if, if I'm trying to figure out this whole Christianity thing, I want to walk in and be like, yes, there are fat people here. I feel normal, like this is the place where I can get better instead of this is the place where I already have to be good in order to fit in. If the church is a spiritual fitness center making us fit for the mission that God has for us, how are we doing? Are you okay with how we're doing? This is easy to talk about. I mean, this whole sermon right now and that conviction you're feeling and all that, this is the spiritual equivalent of of watching aerobics but never getting off the couch. I mean, it's like, yeah, I should do that. This is the easy part. The hard part is doing it. The hard part is fitting ourselves, being fit by this center to embark on this adventure that God is calling us to, of taking what he has done to us, allowing him to do it through us to the next person, to the person after that, to the person after that. I don't want to be part of a church where we just take spiritually healthy people and we teach them new things they've never learned before. I want to be a part of a church where spiritually dead people come to life in Christ. If you've been going to our connection class uh, on Faith Stories over the summer, last week you got to hear uh, Jack and Katie Graham share their story. For Katie, it was being called back to Christ. For Jack, it was being called to Christ for the first time. And I encourage you, get the podcast, listen to it, uh, because Jack shared the role that faith had in calling him back to Christ. Uh, Even coming through on the podcast, you could tell with emotion and with tears as he talked and he named individuals who invited him to, at that time it was an alpha course, who sat with him, who explained things, who eventually led him to Christ, who got him into a Bible study, who helped him grow as a brand new believer, who showed him who God is and how he works. I got so fired up listening to that and then started wondering, when did we lose that passion? When did Faith Church stop getting excited about people coming to Christ? I mean, we're excited when it happens, but when did we stop being so passionate about it that that we couldn't wait to see the next person come? That it felt weird when we'd gone a couple weeks and not heard about anybody accepting Jesus? When, When did we start reading about the adventure and stop living it? Whatever God has done to us, he is going to do through us. That's the calling. That's the adventure. And this is where he makes us fit for the journey. Pray with me. God, you've given us an incredible blessing, one that we do not deserve, cannot fathom in, in first, without caring about our repentance or our seeking of forgiveness. That's not even knowing that we had offended you, you came and reconciled yourself to us through Christ and offered us that free gift of reconciliation, of being made right with you, of becoming your son, your daughter again. God, when we think about it, when we gaze into the glory of your goodness to us in Jesus, it overwhelms us. How can we not want you to do that in the lives of people around us? 
personally, Lord, I confess I have not done this the way you have called. I've sidestepped blatant invitations to share the gospel. I've walked around people that I know are going to take my time. I've been content. I've been content taking the healthy and making them healthier, and I've forgotten about the dying. Lord, give us grace to see the lost people around us, the people you have put into our lives as those that you are calling through us as ambassadors. Be reconciled and give us, make us fit for that adventure. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.